One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Oatbed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, beginning with verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place, every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? The gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with verse 38 of chapter 12. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law, They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. For a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good to see everybody today. I uh, hope you're well. Um, it is getting chilly outside. Not something you didn't know already, but that's a thing today. We're in the warm today. We just kicked off the heater, but we'll kick it back on again if it gets too cold in here. Um, 
I want to start out this morning by telling you a story that some of you may have heard before, but it's been a while since I've talked about this. Um, When we first planted the church here, one of the things that we did, and one of the things most church planters have to do, especially if they go through a network that's a good network, is uh, is to go through an assessment. So Ashley and I went to Chicago for a week-long assessment of us, which is kind of nerve-wracking. There's a bunch of veteran church planners and pastors that gather around and they do a psychological evaluation. They have me preach a sermon. They have us talk about this church that we want to plant. They have us um, go through group projects that we have to work together with other pastors to accomplish a goal. And then all along in every step of the way, there are people around the edge just watching you <laughs> and everything that you're doing, every conversation you have at lunch, everything just to, to analyze you. And it was hard. It was really one of the most difficult things we ever did, but it was also very affirming because at the end of the week, they kind of tell you what they noticed and what they saw. I say it was kind of like a church planting reality TV show that they're watching you all the time. And one of the things you have to come to grips with as a church planter is you plant a church oftentimes out of your strengths. So you go, I'm good at this. I'm good at this thing. I'm going to go plant a church. But you come to grips really quickly with your weaknesses, (laughs) with the places that you're not good at. Every church planter, every pastor, every person has weaknesses, has things that they're not great at. I've met some pastors who they go, gosh, I love church planting and I love pastoring and I love doing this. I just don't really like people very much. It's a really hard thing I'm trying to get over. and try. It's true. I've heard this said before. Or uh, there's a lot of people who are really good at a lot of parts of church planning, and they go, this weakness I'm dealing with is I'm not a great preacher. I really struggle with preaching. And so they try to compensate with that, and they run with that. And there's some people that go, I love, all the, I love Sunday mornings. It energizes me. But if I have to go do a hospital visit again, I'm going to rip my face off. Right? Um, people say this, and not these are good people, wonderful people. Um, I knew a veteran pastor who um, just really, <laughs> he said, I don't really like kids very much. <laughs> and so whenever we talk about having the kids come and do a song and you know, sing in front of all the people or something, and everybody go, oh, that'd be so sweet, he would go, oh my gosh, can I not come to church that morning? <laughs> I know it sounds terrible. It's not terrible. This is a wonderful person, but he struggled with these kind of weaknesses uh, in this way. And one of the things that at the end of our assessment that they told us is they said, you guys have some great strengths. You're approved. We send you. And they said, real quick, you're going to have to ask some people to help you carry some of the detail and administrative things of the church (laughs) because you're kind of weak in that area. So we said, okay, all right, you know, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to move forward with that. And, uh, and, and so I've, I've wrestled with that when you move to a, a, when you start a church in a new city, you kind of go, all right, we are doing everything. So Ashley and I were doing everything at the very beginning. And then people would ask, who do you have in your church? We'd go, well, it's the three of us right now. <laughs> we're just starting this together and doing this and we're doing everything. And so um, one of the things that's been so beautiful this past month is uh, I've talked, uh, David Wally has stepped in and offered, and I'm not gonna talk about him too long because he doesn't like it when I uh, talk about him. But uh, one of the things is that uh, he had offered to step in and help carry a lot of the administrative stuff on Sundays for us. And it's been such an answer to prayer and it's been such a beautiful thing. But one of the things uh, since the very beginning that I've struggled with is there's this one piece of paperwork that we've just not been able to get through, okay? And it is a paperwork that determines that we can get sales tax exemption as a church, an important thing for a church to have, right? 
So we've been going four or five years and I had sent in this paperwork like three or four times and it kept getting sent back to me saying insufficient paperwork. And I kept sending it back and then I'd call and I'd be on hold for like five hours or six hours or whatever, just sitting there with the speakerphone and they would never pick up the phone and this happened over and over again. And it started to become not only a source of frustration, but a source of shame for me. <laughs> we can't get this right. I can't even get the state to validate the fact that I should not have to pay tax for things. Right? And this kind of happened and it was frustrating. And uh, this week, David took the reins of that and it's pretty much done now. So, um, so that's taken care of. Uh, but that, that is this thing. And some of those things, um, and I'm telling you this story, not just to give you a peek behind the curtain of church planting, but to kind of show you that I think all of us have these things in our lives that we go, gosh, if I was just better at that, what's wrong with me? If I could just do this better, then everything would be fine. And for me, that, those paperwork things and those detail things, like I start feeling really bad about myself and I start going, why am I not better at this? And why can't I figure this stuff out? And some people go, it's not that big a deal, but, but I've wrestled with it. And David said something really sweet this week when I sent him the paperwork that he needed and to get this done. And I said, I just feel so embarrassed about this. We've just not been able to figure this out. And he sent it back and he said, Preston, please don't feel embarrassed. That's going to make the story of sacrament all the more sweeter, right? And there is something, something awoke in me as I was thinking about that, about when we have our weaknesses and we actually are open about them and we're vulnerable with our weaknesses, I really think God is able to make something even sweeter out of them, <laughs> something really beautiful out of that. And that's kind of what our story is about today, our stories that we're going to look at. Um, one of the things our culture tends to believe is that our weaknesses are something that we need to shamefully hide, that we need to hide our weaknesses. That, and what the Christian story does is it challenges that thing. It challenges that narrative that we need to hide our weaknesses. The Bible is full of stories of people who are used by God, not in their great strengths, but in their weaknesses. Now, don't get me wrong, God uses our strengths. He uses our personality types. He uses the things that we're good at and our skills. But even our strengths, if you look at the biblical story, often he takes our strengths and he uses them in ways that we don't even expect them to be used because they're different in the hands of God. But most of the biblical story is about the God who uses moments of weakness, who uses weaknesses. The beginning of Israel's story, in fact, is when um, God chooses an old couple, Abraham and Sarah, who thought they could never have children <laughs> to basically procreate the people who would be God's people. Out of their weakness, they're chosen. In fact, it's so unlikely that when they hear this news that they're going to bear God's people, they laugh because it's just so unlikely, it's so unheard of. So they come to God completely unable to be used to produce children and God miraculously by his grace invites him into his story. Another, another leader, Moses, was called by God to be the mouthpiece to Pharaoh for God, to speak on God's behalf and on behalf of the people to Pharaoh. But Moses says, I'm actually not a very good speaker. God chooses him in his weakness, not in his strength. Gideon was this guy called by God, even though he was the least in his family and his family was the least in the whole country, yet God chooses him. And then when God chooses him, he has this army that he assembles and he puts together, but there's too many of them for God to use them. There's thousands of them. So God has to whittle them down to 300 people in order to go into battle. And he uses Gideon in his weakness. 
David had to literally be pulled from the fields where he was watching sheep because his father was thinking about who in his family could possibly be the next king of Israel. And he remembered all of his sons as possibilities and then not David. (laughs) So he had to pull him out of the fields in order for him to be anointed as the king of Israel. Mary was a virgin girl chosen by God to give birth to Jesus, not in strength and weakness. In the New Testament, Saul was really gifted, but he played for the wrong team. He was persecuting Christians. He was a Christian hater. And God uses Paul's hatred, even his weakness, he turns it around. This doesn't mean that we have nothing to give. Gideon brought his 300 David brought his experience protecting sheep and predators. Mary brought her simple obedience. Paul brought his zeal and his knowledge of the Jewish law. But it means we can't rely on our own gifts and skills and experience in our own hands. We have to trust them in God's hands. And we don't just give out of our strength. We give out of our weakness. God doesn't just want our strengths. He wants our shame. He wants the places that we don't measure up. He wants our self-doubt, our lack of identity, our past hurts, because in his hands, something beautiful can happen. This is perhaps why Paul says we ought to rejoice in our weaknesses, for in our weakness, he is made strong. God will use our lives in ways that we would never expect. And today in the drama of scripture, we see this unfolding. So the first passage that we looked at today is from the book of Ruth. Now we don't get to read the entire book of Ruth, this um, uh, lectionary cycle, but we have a little glimpse. We get like the beginning of Ruth and we get the end of Ruth. And so here's the short version of this story. There's this woman named Naomi and she loses everything. Okay, she, her, the famine has taken everything from her. It's taken her husband, it's taken her sons away from her. Um, all of her daughter-in-laws have left her except for one, okay? And this is particularly painful in an ancient culture because a woman's glory, a woman's legacy was really found in her sons. We'll talk about how that's weird for us in a minute, but, but that's where the woman's glory was found in this ancient culture. Young women found a husband who defined who they were in this ancient culture. And then older women, as their sons grew up, saw their glory shine on in their sons. So their worth, their sense of identity, their sense of value was based on the men in their lives. That's how the ancient culture worked. Naomi was this woman then who, as she lost her husband and she lost her sons, she had in this culture lost her glory. She lost her identity. She had lost everything. Her only option in this culture is to live a life of shame because she had nothing else. So what Naomi does is she chooses to return to her homeland, Israel. She was living in this place called Moab, decides to go to her home in Israel. And one of her daughters, Ruth, decides to go with her. Ruth is not an Israelite. She is a Moabitess. She is an outsider to God's story. She's not part of God's family, but she becomes Naomi's surrogate daughter. They are in this together. Now, in our progressive culture, we can obviously throw stones at part of this story. We recognize the problems with the idea of women finding their identity in men, okay? All the ladies said, amen, right? Um, when, uh, When Ashley and I were first dating, we, uh, um, one of the things we had kind of a running joke because I was taught growing up 
that we open the door for women as they walk through, especially our, our wives, that we um, have you know, certain manners, that we always let them go ahead of us, that you know, certain things like that. We would, when we'd go up a steep incline, I would hold her hand, still do, by the way, um, but all of these things. And uh, she, <laughs> the first few times when we were dating, she kind of would pull her hand back and she'd say, I don't need a man, right? So we had this ongoing thing that we would do, this joke that anytime there was something, I would open the door and she'd go, I don't need a man. And she'd walk through and that kind of became an ongoing thing for us. Um, Well, over time, she has come to appreciate those things. You know, we have uh, valued that together, but that was kind of a thing uh, for us that that we would do. Um, So Ruth meets this man named Boaz and Boaz happens to be part of Naomi's husband's extended family. And Boaz chooses to take care of Ruth and Naomi, okay? Naomi asks Ruth then to marry Boaz, to present herself in marriage to Boaz. This would provide security for Ruth and also it would redeem Naomi's legacy and story. She tells Ruth to get dressed up, to basically flirt with Boaz. If you read this story, Um, I won't go into detail on this, but late uncovered his feet is actually a euphemism here. So there's something else going on there. I won't spell it out for you, but uh, and laid at his feet is also a euphemism. She asked her to be with him, ultimately to be a signpost towards marrying him. The Old Testament doesn't necessarily teach us ethics for today, okay? But it is a signpost of the fact that she opened herself up to the redemption that God is providing in Boaz, Okay. And although we look at this story suspiciously in our culture, okay, their identity is still found in a man, that's really weird, even though we have to remember that in this culture, that was how it worked. But Boaz himself is not the only hero in this story. He's not even the primary hero in this story. This is not a damsel in distress story. It is a story of women who lost everything and then surrendered their loss to God. That pain, they surrendered, they took the simple steps. All I know to do is what's right in front of me. I've lost my identity, I've lost my security, I've lost everything that holds dear and defines who I am, and yet I'm going to take this simple step to go back home. I'm gonna take this simple step to follow God in whatever way I can. That's what Naomi did. And then Ruth says, I'm going to take this simple step to be loyal to my mother-in-law. It's the simple step of obedience. In fact, this is one of the rare stories in the Old Testament that doesn't have any miracles in it. Most of the Old Testament has lots of miracles, but in this book, of the book of Ruth, God is relatively silent. There's not these big miraculous things that happen. This is a story about simple steps of faith when someone has lost everything. Ruth has lost everything. Naomi has lost everything. If we think about Ruth for a minute, she's lost all the men in her life. And now she clings to a story and to a God who she's never known before. Yet even in his silence, God is the hero of this story. God is the deliverer here. He takes their simple acts of faith in the midst of their weakness and he redeems them. Boaz is this picture and it would be throughout history, throughout Israel's history, Boaz becomes this picture of God's redemption of God's healing, of God's restoration. In fact, for Christians, Boaz becomes this image of a future Christ who would come and redeem all of our stories and make everything right even when we've lost our identity. 
When we have nothing, he has everything. When we were outsiders, he welcomes us in. He identifies and he trades places with us. So God shows up for Naomi and Ruth. This is a story of shame traded for a new kind of glory. It's a story about those who have no home finding a home. And then if you notice, the end of the book of Ruth is kind of like a superhero origin story, okay? So it's kind of like if you've seen any of the Avenger origin stories or some of the prequels of Star Wars, even though they were terrible, right? Like if, you, if you've watched some of these, you know these hints to these future stories that are unplaying, that are unfolding. So this provides this important backstory for one of Israel's greatest heroes, Boaz and Ruth, it says at the end of the chapter or the end of the book, Boaz and Ruth have a son. His name is Obed. Obed grows up. He has a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up and he has a little shepherd son named David. And David becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. And David ultimately as a king becomes a figure and a signpost of the ultimate king of Israel, Jesus himself. Israel's greatest king had a Moabitess as a great-grandmother. Jesus has foreigners as part of his ancestry. This reminds us that God's legacy is not passed through DNA. It is passed through faithfulness, simple steps of faith. Those willing to surrender their lives, all of it, the good parts and the bad parts. And notice here, Naomi owns her story. She could run away. She could hide in shame. She's experienced this great loss. Ruth and Naomi could both just hide away, but they decide to accept it. And they share, as they share their own story of brokenness, what they do is as they share their story, they open themselves up to allow others to step into their story. Naomi owns, she shows up in Israel and everybody's like, it's so great to see you, Naomi. And she was like, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitterness right? She's saying, this horrible thing has happened to me. She's owning, here's what's happened in my past. But as they open themselves up, they open themselves up as well to redemption, to healing. Are we allowing space for God and others in our lives? Or are we trying to hammer things out ourselves and figure things out for ourselves? This Hebrews passage that we looked at is kind of a technical passage. And It explains how Jesus goes forward on our behalf. He takes his sin, our sin upon himself. The author of Hebrews loves this literary device that he uses over or she uses over and over again, we don't know. Um, And it's Jesus is greater than this, fill in the blank. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than this and this and this. And he loves this pattern over and over again. And here he says, Jesus is the true and better high priest. Jesus is better than the high priests of Israel and the high priests in the pagan world. So if you go back to the ancient world, this idea of a priest was one who there was a particular God and the priest was the one you'd go to if you wanted to see what this God was like. Okay, so if your God was this pagan God and you wanted to know what that God was actually like, you'd go to the priest and the priest would show you and the priest would tell you what that pagan God was like. And then also the priest was one who would offer prayers on your behalf to that God. So if you wanted to offer a sacrifice or prayers, you'd go to that priest and that priest would do that for you and you would follow in that priest's lead. The Jewish faith was a little different, was actually really different in some ways, but also similar the priest would go to the temple over and over again and offer a sacrifice for sin. 
Theologian T.F. Torrance, actually James Torrance, speaks of two ways that we often think about worship in our culture. The first is what he calls the Unitarian model, okay? And the Unitarian model is the most common, actually, in our culture. And in this model, worship and service and giving and prayer are things that we do. They're things that we do, each of us. We, each of us, is primarily responsible to do all of these things, to pray, to serve, to give, to worship, all these things. And yes, we need God's grace, but God's grace is more like inspiration for us. Jesus inspired us to live our best life now. And so we give ourselves to God and we give ourselves to the world. That is this Unitarian model. We, in essence, are the priests. We are the ones who are offering worship to God over and over and over again. Now you might say, whoa, whoa, I am not a Unitarian. Those of you that maybe know that word, I'm a Christian, right? That's, that's not who I am. But even those of us who are Christians and who are Trinitarians are often Unitarian in our worship. We think about it as our thing that we do. It's our effort. It's up to us. We may say, well, yes, Christ died on the cross for me, and that's wonderful, and I accept that, and that gave me relationship with God, but now it's up to me. Now I just got to worship the right way. I got to get this right. Now I got to give the right way. I got to give enough. I got to serve the right way. I've got to serve enough. And this is how, unfortunately, most worship, not just in other religions, but in Christian religion, is expressed and talked about. It's up to me. But there is another way. The second model that James Torrance suggests is the Trinitarian model of worship. In this model, we recognize that Jesus is the great high priest, not us. He is the one praying to the Father, worshiping the Father, giving of himself, loving and serving. And as Christians, as those who are in relationship with him, we get to participate in the Son's communion with the Father by the Spirit. He is our one true priest. And the reason why this is so important is we all inherently know that our offerings, our worship, our prayer, it all falls short on some level, that we're incomplete, that we are broken because of sin, and yet Christ's offering is perfect, and his offering heals us. He takes our broken places and he makes them into something beautiful. Torrance says, he lifts us up out of ourselves to participate in the very life and communion of the Godhead, that life of communion for which we are created. This is also so important when we talk about church unity. We are not just a bunch of scattered churches all around the world, and each of us has to kind of do our own thing and get it right, trying to get our worship right. We are one church coming to the Father through Christ in the communion of the Spirit together with all of the saints. What does this mean? This may sound like technical, theological kind of jargon here, but I want us to see how freeing this is. God just asks that we bring who we are, broken as we are, completely received fully by God in Christ, just as we are. That means there's not pressure to perform in order to earn God's acceptance, that we can't do enough to make him like us or to make him accept us. We've already been invited by the one who himself has given the perfect sacrifice, the perfect prayer, the perfect offering. We have to learn to trust in the grace of God. I don't know about you, but 
I think a lot of us spend a lot of our time beating ourselves up over what we're not doing right or what is broken in our lives or what is inadequate. And we don't trust the grace of God. And as we've been accepted as we are, we become stewards of God's grace to the world. So we're invited to participate with Christ and to shine that healing light to others. Like if you think about it this way, like it's really hard if we hide all our broken places and we pretend that everything is like perfect and right and we kind of put on a mask. It's really hard then to go to other people and to say, hey, God accepts you just as you are. (laughs) Open yourself up to God's grace because we're not doing that ourselves, right? God accepts us just as we are, and we're invited to shine our light to others. Today, we're gonna participate in sharing a meal, those who can join us today at two, with the homeless community in our neighborhood. And we do so not as like rescuers. This can't be a thing where we just, oh, we're gonna go save the neighborhood and we're gonna go make this thing that's broken fixed. No, we do this simply as stewards of the grace that God has given us. We recognize that the issue of homelessness, of some of the brokenness that we experience in our neighborhood here is is not an issue that we just step in and fix. It's complicated, it's multi-layered. Being part of serving a meal today doesn't fix all of that. But what we can do is we can recognize the God who's accepted us just as we are and shine that light in broken places. Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. Think about that. Your good works are not so God accepts you or God feel good about himself or anything like that. God already accepts you just as you are. Our good works are to shine that love and that acceptance to the world, to other people. It's part of participating in the triune God of grace. And we never do that alone. And this grace is never ours to give. Christ is in worship with us, serving with us, loving with us. So even as we worship together, Like it changes the way we think about our songs even. And when we sing to God, it's not that God, I'm gonna just sing to you the best that I have and all that I have. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try to make this right. And I'm gonna try to make this perfect. This is Christ is worshiping and we get to join him. We get to add our voices with him, recognizing that sometimes our motives are flawed. Sometimes we're often we're broken, but yet we get to join in that chorus. All has been redeemed, and now we are to steward the grace. We see these two kinds of worship contrasted in our gospel text today. Jesus describes the the scribes and the religious leaders of his day, and he says, they're walking around in long robes. They are greeted with respect. They have to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They long for the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. But it says they do all that, and then they exploit the weak. They, they exploit the widows. They say long prayers, but they're only so that they can be seen. And then there's a contrast. Jesus points out how there's so many rich scribes and Pharisees who are making these really large contributions. But then there was a poor widow and she gave the equivalent of two cents. And he says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. And I love this phrase right here. They gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. There's so many points that we could make from this text and have been made. We could talk about the hypocrisy of religious leaders, 
Many of us in this room grew up in the eras of megachurch corruption. Um, I, when I was young, um, a kid, um, they had the Jim Baker scandal and the Jimmy Swagger thing that happened. And we could list all these different names. And this kind of thing has morphed in the church. Uh, the financial extravagances are not maybe the same as they were, praise God. But power and status and fame and popularity still tempts Christian leaders. Christian leaders, like every leader in our society, is tempted by power, by abusing others, by taking advantage of others. We could also do from this passage a message on giving. We could talk about how um, giving is more about, is more about like, like what we give and the heart behind our gift rather than just the amount that we give. But I'm struck by this phrase over and over again. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, everything that she had. What does it mean to give out of our poverty instead of out of our wealth? What does it mean to give ourselves out of our weakness instead of just our strength? To give all of ourselves instead of just the places that we have all together. I think we naturally get that, I think all of us naturally think that we're supposed to give and serve and worship and love out of our strength. So we think I'm really good at this thing. I have extra here, so I'll give. I feel good today, so I'll pray. God worked, God, I worked really hard at this. See how proud you should be of me because I did this thing and this thing. Um, Lucy often will do something and, and then she'll say, dad, aren't you really proud of me? Look at this painting that I made. Aren't you really proud of me? Look, I spelled these letters right. Aren't you proud of me? And my response is always, I'm very proud of you, but it's not dependent on whether you write the right letters or not or do this pretty picture. That's a wonderful thing that you did, but I love you just as you are. We are her parents who are say, just simply there to say, we're proud of our little girl. God doesn't just want our strengths, our good moments, our extra. God wants all of us. And that even means the times that we're mad at him. <laughs> there are times when Lucy yells at me and she, she knows buttons to push. <laughs> she knows to say, I wish you never would have adopted me. Like she knows these really like harsh things to say and they break my heart. But then later she'll come back and I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And at that moment, I have the opportunity to say, I love you and I'm so proud of you just for who you are. I think God is that way with us, that the moments we're mad at him, <laughs> even that, he wants to know that part of our heart. He wants to know where that comes from. The times when we messed up and all we wanna do is dig a hole and crawl into it, he wants our weakness, he wants our brokenness. Why? Because he loves us. And his love is healing and restorative. In fact, it's only his love that heals those broken places. That's it. God's kingdom is so different, Jesus says. In God's kingdom, two widow coins given in poverty are worth more than the largest gifts in strength. God wants our whole selves, our shame, our brokenness, our confession. We give and love and serve out of our poverty and we trust God's abundance. I wanna close with a story. Um, Charles Spurgeon was considered the prince of preachers. And he once told this story. Uh, one day there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot, okay? He was a gardener, a farmer of carrots, grew this enormous carrot, and he wanted to give it as a gift to the king, 
okay, the king who was ruling over this whole land. And so he goes to the king and he presents this gift and he says this, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I wanna present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king saw the man's heart and it moved him deeply. So he told him, because I can tell you are a great steward of the earth, I wanna give you a plot of land and I'm gonna give it to you free as a gift so that you can garden it and garden it all. Well, the man like rejoiced and he ran home rejoicing. But there was also um, another guy, a nobleman, and he heard this whole thing and he saw this whole thing and he thought to himself, my, um, if that's what you get for a carrot, I might get something better. If I can get my resources together, get my act together, and I can come and bring something special to the king, I'll get something better than this plot of land. So the next day, he brought the king a handsome black stallion. And he said, my lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king said just a simple thank you and dismissed him. The guy was baffled. He what? What's going on? And the king saw that he was baffled. So the king said this, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Think about it, right? You can see here the difference in posture. One gives out of their strength, okay? Here's how special I am. Here's what I want from this. One gives out of their humble desire to serve, out of humility, One wants to exalt himself out of a desire to earn. The other, it's a simple posture of thankfulness and appreciation. The stallion is worth more in the world's eyes, but the other, the carrot, is more like the currency of the kingdom of God. And yet, some of us come and we recognize, I don't know if my motives are good all the time. (laughs) Sometimes maybe I do have bad motives. What do I do with that? Well, I think... God even wants us to recognize our bad motives and to give those to him too. When I pray, I often find myself saying, God, is it even appropriate for me to pray for this thing? Is this this appropriate? Is this right? Is this selfish? Am I throwing myself a pity party here? Am I doing certain things? And yet, God, will you do something with even my selfishness-tinged prayers? And he does. He sees our hearts. He hears our prayers and he makes something beautiful out of them. Here's some questions I want us to ponder as we um, go throughout our week this week. In what ways might God be leading you to surrender your shame, your brokenness to him? Um, Maybe your broken story. God makes beautiful things out of broken things. So we look at all the heroes throughout scripture. They were chosen in weakness, not in strength. Maybe you look back at your story and you go, man, I messed up here and here and here and here. And there's a lot of brokenness or I've been through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. Um, What would it look like for us to surrender our broken story to God? Secondly, what would it look like for us to surrender our futile attempts to earn or to please? Um, Your worship, your giving, your performance, your longing, all of that is ultimately not yours. Christ has offered a perfect sacrifice and invites you to participate in the communion with the Son and the Father. And then finally, your offerings, your whole self. Even if you believe, gosh, my gifts and my skills, what I have to offer is so small. It seems like it's so unimportant. 
There is something really amazing about bringing all that we are out of our weakness, all that we have, and giving it to him. He makes beautiful, amazing things out of that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story that we're part of. The story of the kingdom of God that's upside down and different. Um, many of us have spent so much of our lives trying to earn enough, please enough, achieve enough. Today we come and we surrender all that we are. Yes, those strengths that we have, we recognize that they're gifts from you. And yet we also surrender and we give up those places that are broken and shameful, those places that hurt. We give them to you, Lord, today. We thank you that you make amazing things out of weakness. So we see in Ruth's story, just as the simple steps that Naomi and Ruth take of faithfulness, of taking one step and one step and one step, of owning their story, of recognizing what's happened to them and recognizing their weakness, that you open the door for redemption. Lord, we thank you that you are the better high priest, that instead of us going over and over again to you, that there's one perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you today. Our desire is to be like the widow who gives out of her poverty and not just out of her abundance. We give all that we are today and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.